Now, good news for baseball fans, especially here in South Korea, because South Korean pitcher Ryu Hyun-jin will be donning a new MLB uniform next year, putting pen to paper on a four-year deal worth 80 million U.S. dollars with the Toronto Blue Jays. The monster deal makes Ryu the highest-paid South Korean pitcher in history. His flight left Incheon International Airport in South Korea earlier this week, headed for Canada, fittingly arriving on Christmas morning. The Blue Jays' biggest holiday surprise is also their biggest and most important rotation addition of the winter. And Hyun Jin Ryu was certainly welcomed like one. The more that we dug into Ryu and spent time learning about him, the more excited we got and the more exceptional he became to us. Um, you know, really stood out his ability to you know, command the ball so exceptionally well, get outs at every quadrant of the zone with four different pitches, insane athleticism and just ability on a field is it was something exceptional to watch. Despite being in the midst of a rebuild, Toronto secured one of the last remaining prized free agent pitchers on the market, offering Ryu the second largest deal in franchise history, trailing only his former battery mate, Russell Martin. And it certainly didn't take Ryu long to endear himself to the fan base. Hello, Canada. <laughs> Bonjour. New ATL, new year. Ben Nicholson Smith, Arden Zwelling. New Blue Jay, Hun Jin Ryu is a Toronto Blue Jay. I was going to say he's going to be one for the next four years, but we don't actually know that. The Blue Jays will pay him for the next four years, probably, unless they trade his contract. But four years, $80 million, new ace of the Toronto Blue Jays. I was so surprised that they got it done, even though I knew they were interested, right? And we knew that they were serious about trying to add starting pitching. But when news broke that they were actually signing Ryu, I was, honestly, I was surprised. Weren't you? Why? I, well, I just mean, like, this front office had topped out at $36 million in spending. Like for the offseason so far? For their point. entire history here in <laughs> Toronto. They had oh. never spent more than $36 million, right? <laughs> wow. J-Hap, that was the biggest free agent contract. Yeah. And as much as they had talked about spending, I really got the sense that the 2020-21 offseason was going to be the one where they were more aggressive in free agency. And it, it honestly, I didn't fully believe it when the Blue Jays said that they were prepared to spend big for the right player. And I just, you know, I, I believe that it would happen eventually. I didn't believe that it would happen this offseason. I just didn't see them being that high bidder for Zach Wheeler or, or Ryu or even Garrett Cole on the very high end. And I knew they were engaged, but I thought the Angels would step up. I thought the Dodgers would step up. I didn't think it would be the Blue Jays that got it done, but full credit to them. I mean, he's a really good pitcher. They're paying him a lot of money, but they can afford it. He's a good pitcher. I have talked about opportunism, though, when it comes to that uh, in past uh, episodes of At The Letters, and that if there is somebody available on this year's market, somebody available by trade, by a free agency who's going to help you when you expect to win and contend in 2021 and uh, after the work stoppage, (laughs) uh, you you need uh, to jump at it because you don't know when those opportunities are going to present themselves. So even if it doesn't time perfectly – uh, next year's free agent market isn't as good as this year's. So the Blue Jays, in a sense, I don't know that they had to go get a, a frontline starting pitcher, but they clearly came into this offseason motivated to get one and wanting to get one. And I think it's probably because they looked at this market and thought, you know, yeah, like considering the fact that, you know, we, we don't always have the, the most success luring free agents here for a variety of reasons, 
let's go get our guy now. Uh, even if we only win 80 games in, in 2020, we're still getting somebody who should be helping us when we are ready to contend in 2021. Yeah, exactly. And in the meantime, they can afford that $20 million. I mean, you look at Vlad and Bo and Biggio and Lourdes, all these guys are making basically the league minimum or a little bit more. So it won't be until the final year of Ryu's contract that Vlad and Bo and Biggio are even arbitration eligible. Nate Pearson won't even be arbitration eligible at that point. So you're looking at a team that has a lot of flexibility and you have to use it on someone. You know, there's no point in having financial flexibility if it's just this abstract idea. Mm -hmm. If you use it, Great. And I don't know if Ryu is going to be healthy. I mean, he's someone who has had a lot of trouble staying healthy in the last few years. Certainly 2019 was really productive for him, but he might give you 100 innings. He might give you 50 or it might be 150. It's not someone that you can bank on for 200 innings, but he should be good when he's on the mound. Yeah, my sense is the Blue Jays are thinking more 500 innings over these four years yeah. rather than seven or 800. And I think they'd be fine with that, honestly. I think if they got you know 125 innings on average over these four seasons, I think the Blue Jays would say, yeah, that's what we paid for. Yeah. I don't think that they're looking for a 200-inning guy every season. And this is where the $20 million has to be taken in context, right? Because it's a lot of money. It's the highest paid player on the Toronto Blue Jays. And it is the second biggest contract the Blue Jays have ever signed in free agency in their history. Biggest for a pitcher ever. So it's a lot of money. But compared to Zach Wheeler, who's making 23, compared to Garrett Cole, who's making 36 a year <laughs> times nine years, right? That's a lot more money. Cole's a better pitcher. Yeah. You'd way rather have Garrett Cole. But he's making almost twice as much per season as Ryu. So 20 million is a lot. But in the context of a free agent starting deal, the risk that you're taking on is baked into the price. I mean... Dallas Keuchel got 17 or 18. David Price is making way more than this. So 20 million for Ryu, yeah, it's a lot of money, but if you're signing free agent pitching, that's what you're going to have to do. That's the the big like narrative that kind of fell for me with this move was the risk aversion one, right? Of oh, this front office won't take big swings, they won't, you know, put themselves out there and stick their necks out and take big risks because this is a hella risky signing. When you, not only the injury history that you suggested, but you think about the profile of this pitcher, it's not a guy who's like relying on ninety eight, ninety nine, right? Like it's a guy who throws one of the softest fastballs in baseball with one of the lowest spin rates in baseball relies on command and feel and finesse. Great, but the margin for error is slim if you don't have that command and you don't have that control. And Hunjin Ryu's is elite. Like among the best in the game, his changeup is a spectacular weapon uh, and he really mixes and matches his pitch as well and sets hitters up well and avoids patterns and routines. And that's why you see so many funky swings against him because guys are like, that's ah, not the pitch I was looking for. But he's got to throw strikes. He's got to be in the zone because if you start walking guys or if you start being over the plate you're going to get hit because the stuff isn't premium yeah and this might be unfair but you know as you were talking there the idea came to mind of you know mark burley without the durability and you know maybe that's a little bit harsh but he's a soft tossing left-hander doesn't throw bullpen sessions doesn't seem to be someone who's like a gym rat so to yeah. speak he's out there doing his starts, trying to maintain his arm health by not overdoing it, which, great, that works for him. He's 32, so he certainly knows what works for him at this point. And yet, he hasn't historically been someone who gives you 200 innings a year in a, the same kind of metronomic reliability that, that Burley gave you. So, uh, you know, I think that you're probably right to say 125 innings a year. AL East, 
tough to handle, but I think he'll be able to do it. I think he's a huge upgrade for this rotation and, and a welcome addition to a staff that was really short on upside. Yeah, he's moving to a more competitive division in a league where he's going to have to face a designated hitter once every nine instead of a pitcher to play in a smaller ballpark to play in front of a worse defense. Yeah. Like you cannot expect the numbers that we have seen from Hunjin Ryu in previous years to be replicated going forward. Uh, I think they'll still be very, very good, uh, especially like when he's on and when he's healthy. And it seems like the you know from what I understand, the medicals all came up good, and the Blue Jays didn't find any surprises in there. Like this is a guy who like pitched through a torn labrum for a while, like for an ex- extended stretch. So it was reasonable to think like, is there going to be something in here? Seems like he's healthy and and he's ready to go. Uh, so I think that when he's on, like he can be very very good. But I do think that there is going to be you know a bit of a, a decline in in the numbers going forward from him. But again, baked into the price. Exactly, and I mean he was the major league ERA leader last year. Yeah. So if he declines, that's still fine. He can still be thirtieth <laughs> in ERA or sixtieth in ERA and still be a good pitcher. I mean, there's a lot of room to fall for Ryu, who obviously was the second place finisher in Cy Young voting last year. He's a really good pitcher. And as you said, it's more so finesse. It's more so keeping hitters off balance. But I think that should work. And, you know, you alluded to this before, but one of the, you know, there's the on-field side of it with you look at the roster, it's better now. Great. There's the financial side of it, which they can absorb. I mean, it's $80 million, which is a lot, but they're at a point now where that's the kind of deal that they can take on pretty seamlessly. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the optics and front office side of it, which I think is a significant part of this deal because it just, for Ross Atkins, this is the biggest deal he's gotten done. It shows that the Blue Jays' ownership is willing to spend because they spend $80 million. It shows that the Blue Jays' front office can complete a deal and sign a prominent free agent to bring to Toronto. And that's something that, you know, fairly or unfairly, there were doubts on that front. And until you do it, it's hard to really believe or it's hard for fans to believe, I think pretty fairly, yeah. that you will do it. You can say you will, but it's another thing to actually go out and do it. And now the front office has actually done that. That's one thing Scott Boris mentioned when I was talking to him was, you know, I think that free agents next year, winter are going to look at the Blue Jays differently than they were this winter. And sometimes it just takes that move, right? It takes doing it rather than just saying it. You got to take everything Scott Boris says with a little grain of salt, obviously. But, uh, you know, he's always got his own interests in mind with whatever he says. But I, I do think that it does, like, impact the way the Blue Jays are viewed in the game to have people talking about you as, oh, they're coming out of this rebuild. Oh, they're trying. Like, they are taking the steps that they need to. They are flexing the financial muscle that we are all aware that they have and that we haven't seen them necessarily flex in in the last couple of years. I do think there's an impact there when it comes to acquiring, uh, you know, free agents. And it does remove one of those barriers, you know, along with like geography and what your family wants to do and taxes and all these things that, you know, all these reasons that players would have not to come to Toronto. It does remove one of those barriers of, okay, this is a team that's, you know, trying to win. Uh, because competitiveness and the direction of the franchise is something that is front of mind for a lot of free agents. Yeah, trying to win for sure. And I think even beyond trying, you know, because in some ways they were trying before. You know, obviously they've been trying before, but it's setting out a plan and charting a course for yourself saying, okay, we want to add impact starting pitching, which the Jays said at the beginning of the offseason. And then in November, they were saying we're being aggressive on starting pitching. And that was met with, I think, a lot of skepticism from fans and from media members. Yeah. I, I wasn't. I knew that they were being aggressive. I mean, it was quite clear they were making offers to pitchers. So that much I obviously saw and believed because it was it was fact. But 
I think it goes to another level when you actually convert that talk into action. And so that's what's happening here, where it's not just Ross Atkins sitting in front of us on October the 1st, recapping the season and saying, yeah, we want to get impact starting pitching, but it's actually getting it. And so whether you're a player on this team, let's say Bo Bichette, he's reading those comments, he sees Atkins delivering. Maybe you're a, a, you know, a part of the support staff. Maybe you're a fan. For anyone connected to the organization, now you're seeing that this front office is carrying out in a public way their plan. And that has to be a reassuring thing, I would think. And it's funny to think about like what we would be talking about if we did this podcast like two days before the right. review signing or like during the winter meetings like i'm sh- like sure that you know you your feedback was vitriolic in terms of what you were hearing from you know fans and and people who were really dissatisfied right with you know free agents coming off the board one after another and uh, the blue jays not being involved what, what well it's just so it was so intense like not to get too into like the media world of things, right? But I was getting ratioed on every tweet. Right, you know, yeah. like I, you could not say something. I'm sure it's the same as you, even though you I know, don't tweet. You, no. yeah, right. Yeah. You're you're probably less active on yeah. Twitter, but every single tweet that I would send out, I'm just getting ratioed because no one was was happy with the Toronto Blue Jays. It seemed, at least in the selection of people that was that was responding to me on Twitter. And it just seemed like even anecdotally with with friends of mine, family members who, you know, obviously following the Blue Jays, there's lost the Nicholson Smith family. (laughs) I wouldn't go quite that far. But, you know, there was just a degree of skepticism of what's happening here. You know, is is, does it really end with Tanner Roark? And now I think there's understandably, I think, a lot more, you know, there's talent on the field. And that corresponds to the way that fans are going to feel about this team. Look, it's free agency. Like you do what you can. Rick Porcello wouldn't take their money. Yeah. You know, Cal Gibson wouldn't take their money. Like Josh Lindblom, right? Like they they made a competitive offer there. Mike Mustakis, they made a really competitive offer there. Didi, and, right? Didi Gregorius, right? Like some players wouldn't take their money. Mustakis got blow. Everybody in the league got blown out of the water by a massive deal. You know, like Didi, the opportunity wasn't there for him to to play short as much as he would have wanted to. Yeah. I mean, you know, the players like that's free agency. Players have agency. You yes. know, they have, they, can, <laughs> they can choose what they what's best for them. Yeah. And like so, you know, you talk about geography, which is a factor. 100% a factor. Taxes here, right? Like a different country. What do your wife and kids want to do? When you're talking about free agents, you're talking about like 32, 33-year-olds. They probably have a long-term partner and and they get a say in it as well. And they might have kids as well. Do it, you know, what's the school system like there? Where do I want to live? I want to be close to family, and I'm from the southern United States. I'm going really far from family here. Where do I want spring training to be? Maybe I want it to be in Arizona rather than Florida. Hey, the Blue Jays have been really bad for a couple of years and they don't look that close to winning. And I am like getting into like my 33, 34 seasons here. I need to win now. I need to be somewhere where we're going to win. Even like if you're of that kind of vintage of like 32, 33, 34 year old free agent, like Porcello Gibson types who are going to sign one or two year deals. What have the Blue Jays done with guys who they have signed of that vintage in recent off seasons? Right. They've traded them at yeah. the deadline, right? Like it's Steve Pierce, Senwano, you know, uh, Freddie Galvis wasn't traded, but he was moved, right? It has to be a factor. I don't think it's a determining factor, but like as a free agent, you're thinking, am I going to be moved just like those guys? I'm signing up for, if I'm Steve Pierce, I'm signing up for two years in Toronto and three months into it, 
I'm getting traded and now I'm somewhere else and I got to figure out all the life stuff around that in terms of living arrangement and, you know, spouse and kids and family and all those things. And it's just a disruption in my season when I'm trying to be productive and I'm traded at the end of, you know, one long road trip to start another road trip with another team, you know, and, and all the people that I spent all year getting to know in spring training, all this training staff and, and team people and, and teammates <laughs> and coaches, all these people. Now this is all different and I'm thrust into a new situation. Yeah. And Ryu avoids some of that with a no trade clause in his contract. So, you know, by all accounts, it seems like he's, uh, you know, already uh, looking to be a part of the Toronto community. And there's a big Korean community here, which is really cool. And he's, um, you know, seemingly set to kind of connect with that community which is great. And hopefully we see a lot of Korean fans at, at Rogers Center in 2020 and beyond. But you're right, for a lot of those players who are in, you know, maybe they don't have the leverage to demand a no trade clause. You're looking at a one-year deal. Well, how stable are you really at that point? All right. You mentioned the Korean community in, in Toronto. It, like it, this wasn't at all like a factor in the Blue Jays pursuing Ryu. Like they wanted him because he's a really good pitcher, right? And because he's a front line. Like he's, you know, he's probably one of the top 10 free agents available this offseason. Without like a doubt. Right? A yeah. front line. That's why they wanted him. But there are some additional benefits, I think, in terms of uh, Blue Jays popularity uh, internationally, right? In terms of Blue Jays popularity here in Toronto with a very sizable Korean community. I put it forward in the piece that I originally wrote about this, and it was based off of a conversation I had with somebody in the Blue Jays organization, actually. Why not do something like a King's Court, like what they did with Felix Hernandez in Seattle? Not my idea. It came from somebody in the Jays organization who mentioned it to me. Why not do something like that? I think it's a great idea. If yeah. you're not going to be selling, like, and the Blue Jays can project their ticket sales and see what they're going to have. If you think you're going to be selling out regularly, then, yeah, you don't need to do stuff like that. But if you're going to have empty swaths of seats, why not take you know, a 100 level section down the left field line, you know, not a premium area by any means and discount the prices and hand out T-shirts and signs and whatever you want to do and make it, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it uh, for reuse starts. I think it's a great idea. I like it. I think that'd be a lot of fun. It, it would be different for Toronto. I mean, the there's, I think, two previous Korean born players in Blue Jays history. Rob Snyder's one and the other one's escaping me. Uh, but neither one of them has had this kind of stature, you know? Right. Um, I had it on the tip of my tongue, too. Was it not Sun Wano? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, Sun yeah. Wano. So there we go. So a relief pitcher and a backup infielder are the two Korean-born uh, players in Blue Jays history. So Ryu, far you know, greater as far as stature and potential impact. Um, even, you, you know, you look at the Japanese players um, in Blue Jays history, and they've added another one in Shun Yamaguchi, who will be added to the officially introduced next week, um, already on the roster. But even there, I mean, Kawasaki was obviously a fan favorite, but he was a backup infielder as well. So now they're adding, you know, they're, they're going to the Pacific Rim. They're adding in that market. I think that market overall for the Blue Jays will be bigger for them going forward too. And we're starting to see that this season. Yeah, games in KBO and NPB, it's a much different atmosphere than MLB. It's that King's Court atmosphere. And that's the thing I love about that idea is that they would start chanting when Felix got to two strikes. You know, like it wasn't just after a strikeout. Like you, the biggest kind of like anticipatory like uh, fan event that you get at the Rogers Center is two strikes in the ninth inning. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and then people are like, all right, I'll get up yeah. and I'll clap. Yeah. Right. And then it's like, all right, Jason Frazier is going to take like six pitches to get this final out of yeah. this, you know, six run blowout. Yeah. Right. But like, so to have that type of tradition where it's like, hey, every time we use that two strikes, like 
we're getting up, like we're raising our signs. So you look at Korean games and Japanese games, like they're chanting throughout, like throughout plate appearances, you know, throughout the game. Like it's, it's much more of a, you know, guys who go over and play there, like they say it reminds them of college kind of, of an NCAA atmosphere. It would be cool to have that element at Rogers Center. It will just be cool to have more of an international element with, you know, a Korean player now and a Japanese player. And obviously you got Dominicans around and uh, they're going to have a Canadian this year. I, don't I actually know. don't know. I was wondering that too. Um, I don't think they will. Yeah, I think all the Canadians are gone. Yeah, right? cycled out. There's a time they had a lot of them. Yeah, who's coming up? There's nobody really coming up. No. Yeah, Demi Ormoloy, right? Like, uh, so yeah, like it's going to be cool to just have that element around the ballpark. When Ryu, you know, made his only appearance in MLB here with the Dodgers, you had like a section of about a thousand Korean fans down that left field line that were all going nuts for him. And the thing is, it wouldn't grow old, too, because if he's making 32 starts, or maybe in his case, let's call it 24 starts a year, say half of those are at home, it's only 12 times a year. So it's, you know, twice a month you have this happening. It's really not something that would grow stale very quickly, I don't think. So the other thing about Hunjin Ryu allows a lot of contact. Um, and I think that what you put around him is really important. I think he really needs a uh, savvy, cunning catcher behind the plate who's going to really have a game plan and really understand hitters because Ryu's sequencing and just his patterns are so important with his repertoire and with how he gets out. Uh, So I think he's got to have like a really adept catcher. I think he's going to have a really good defense behind him as well. He allows a lot of contact, man. A lot of his outs come from soft contact. The Dodgers were, you know, they weren't one of the best defensive teams in baseball, but they, I think, positioned their defenders as well as anybody in baseball last season. You can look at the the shift charts and like they are, you know, right on to where they needed to be. And they shifted, I want to say, more than half the time last year, which not a lot of teams do. There's a bit of a difference in the infield defense going from the Dodgers to the Blue Jays. I think you need to have a Travis Shaw at third base when Hunjin Ryu is on the mound. I think you need to have a not Teoscar Hernandez in center field when Hunjin Ryu is on the mound because so many of his outs come from soft contact. Interesting. I, you know, I see where you're going there. And you know, I saw the stat released yesterday with uh, Vlad Jr. being the worst infielder in baseball by this outs above average stat. We can uh, get to that. Via, via StatCast. That's not a that. good sign. We'll get to that. For, I think for those of us and those of you who watched the Blue Jays last year, not a surprise to see the Vladdy rank pretty low um, or at the very, very bottom as, as is the case here. But yeah, I think I think you do want to surround him with a good defense. Ultimately, I don't know that you can you know shuffle this group of Blue Jays position players in such a way that you're going to end up with a great defensive team yeah. behind Ryu. I, I just don't know that that's there right now. Vladdy Apparently working out, potentially improving. We'll see where that goes. You know, I don't think that you want to, in a year where you're likely, you know, and we can we can get to this, but I think probably 500 team right now for the Blue Jays. If I had to like project right now, I would say 78 to 80 wins. Sure, we'll go with that. And I think that's, you know, pretty reasonable. I might be a little touch higher, but somewhere around 500 for this team in 2020, it's still a chance for you to develop Vladdy into a potential third baseman. And I'm not saying the chance is high, but if you have a 20% chance that he can be a good third baseman in the future, now is the year where you figure that out. And I don't know that you want to you know, destroy his confidence by never playing him when you have the ace on the mound. I guess I, and let's get to this, because I just, I, th- this ends with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. as a first baseman. That's really my belief, is that like this, this saga ends and we can take this season, this 2020 season, when, yeah, you're not like contending for a pennant. Okay, 
give them one more shot, right? Yeah. Like give them another year to try to figure it out. I'm not all the way out of the pool on the Vladdy as a third baseman thing, but I've moved. I've taken yeah. a step out, man. Like, and I, I've been on this podcast in the past and said, no, like give him a shot. Like let it, let him develop there. Let him get better. Like let him learn. And like, let's see if you can develop him because he'll have so much more value as a third baseman, this, that, and the other. I'm coming off of that position, man. I'm, I'm changing. I mean, I just, I, I think he's a first baseman, man. And the, the confidence thing, like the kid just wants to hit. He's a kid, right? Like all he's done all his life is hit. And that's all that's like really motivated him all his life is hitting, right? And being a great hitter. So if he's out there like hitting 30, 40 bombs a year and walking a bunch, he's got 900 OPS. I don't think he's going to be that demoralized that he's not playing third base anymore. Right. And I don't think that Miguel Cabrera has lost a lot of sleep over the times that, you know, oh, I, I wish I could have been a third baseman. He's crushing it, winning triple crowns at first. You're fine. I guess in the short term, if you think that there's... I don't know, 20, 30% chance that Flat Jr. can become a third baseman, like a, a decent third baseman, then now is the time to take that shot. And even if you admit, yeah, he certainly doesn't look like a great third baseman right now, then you can still explore that in spring, first half of the season, see where it goes. And then if he's still not a good defensive third baseman, you can adjust course you know, either this year or next year, depending on where the Jays are in the contention picture, depending on how bad or good Vladdy is. All those things can factor in. Do you look at the Raphael Devers example in Boston as something that could happen for Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? Or yeah. is that even just like best case, super optimistic scenario? I don't think it's that crazy. I think it's it, that would be a, probably a good scenario for the Jays, definitely. But I don't think it's that crazy because in both cases, you have really young guys. I mean, Vladdy, if he were in college, would be what, a junior right now? You know, so and I don't think that you'd look at a college third baseman and say, well, he, you know, he's he's absolutely moving across the diamond. You might say there's a likelihood that he will or, we're, you know, we project him as a first baseman. But in a lot of cases, you'd say hey, there's some room to work here. We think if we pair him with our instructors, if he works at it, he can improve. So Raphael Devers made a great improvement defensively last season by outs above average, which is the stat you were referring to earlier. He went from negative seven in 2018 to plus seven in wow. 2019. 14 point swing, right? Like to me, I think that's about like best case scenario for like, if you did something like that, you're like, holy crap. Like yeah. that's huge. That's amazing. If Vladimir Guerrero Jr. had a 14 point swing and outs above average, he would still be a below average <laughs> MLB third base. Yeah. He would still be in the negative yeah. in that category, right. which isn't the be all and end all. And like publicly available defensive statistics aren't as, or at least we're told, like aren't as, you know, good or predictive as the ones that teams have, the proprietary ones that they have. But I just don't see it, man. We're talking yeah. about a guy who objectively with the measures that we have was the worst third baseman in MLB last year defensively. I just don't see him getting good enough to a point where when you're winning, in 2021 and, and forward, you're like, I feel good about this guy at third base. Unlikely, for right? sure. I mean, it's it's an uphill battle. But I will say that if you have Vladdy at third base, then it allows you to keep first base open. And it allows you to take chances on guys like Travis Shaw, who was added on a $4 million deal by the Blue Jays. They can keep him around for 2021 if they want to. Shaw obviously has had some really good seasons in 17 and 18 with the Brewers. And if Vladdy's at first you might not have room to take risks on guys like that. So this is where having Vlad at third allows you to almost do what the Rays do at first base, where it's just this rotating cast. You see who comes in. Maybe you have a really good year out of whoever it is, a Casey Kochman, a Carlos Pena, 
or maybe you don't and you move on. But if you have Vladdy at first base, that blocks things up a little bit. But I think you want to give Travis Shaw pretty regular playing time, right? Like yes. every, you want to give him the runway to try to figure things out and get back to the guy who was in the past. So why not just flip them? Why not have him at third and Vladdy at first? And now you don't have ground balls getting through the left side all the time. And I, I think if it was 2021, that would be what was happening. And that's the thing. In 2021, outs need to be made, yeah. right? Like this season, like I think you can live with like a developmental year for a guy to an at extent. third, right? Like unless it gets like super, super ugly, right? And then at, at that point, like there could be a bit of a demoralizing effect from like continuous errors being made, right? Yeah. Like you make an error on a ball in the first inning and then it affects your plate appearance in the first, the third, the fifth, right? Like, and it, it bleeds through your performance for the rest yeah. of the game. Uh, as a young player, you're probably not as good as compartmentalizing and getting past things and processing things quickly and putting your mistakes behind you like you're probably thinking about them as you as you go forward you can live with it this year in 2021 when you're trying to win you need outs being made you need a really good defense especially if you're going to have a rotation with guys that don't you know strike out like 10 to 12 per nine such as a Ryu or a you know I don't know Shoemaker Baraki what have you Tanner Roark, Chase Anderson. Yeah. I mean, really, you look at this entire Toronto Blue Jays rotation, it's not filled with overpowering arms right now. And that's okay. Nate Pearson will have some, you know, he'll offset that to some extent once he's up. But even you look at the depth tier of arms. And I mean, you look at Jacob Wagaspak and you look at TJ Zoik and these guys, for everything that we've seen in their development, are not huge swing and miss guys. So you are going to need to have a pretty solid defense out there. You know, I think that some of that improvement's going to be internal. Some of that might be newcomers. And then you look at the outfield too. And I mean, I, I do think you're right to identify center field as an issue for this team. And they've been open to discussing deals, trades for outfielders. I mean, they've they've been linked to, you know, free agents, corner guys. You know, they checked on guys like Nick Castellanos, although I don't see that as a fit right now. And then they've talked about trade potential. I mean, Jackie Bradley Jr., Jock Peterson, yeah. these are names they've had on their radar. But I don't get the sense that anything's close on a center field front. So I'm almost more inclined to believe that they'll start the season with the guys they have internally. I think that if there was an opportunity there to upgrade substantially, they would do it, right? If they're taking on another like project type, like another Derek Fisher type or like, you know, Hernandez or, you know, Grichuk, like love the, right? Yeah, Yeah, we like the profile and oh, he hits from the left side and he's athletic and, you know, good, you know, batted ball stats and exit velocity stuff and great AAA numbers and just hasn't figured it out in the majors. They're not going to, they're just going to go with their own guys who fit that profile. It would have to be a significant upgrade where it's like, hey, this is a, young guy with uh who's an established like above average major league hitter and defender who like we have some contractual control over for a number of years like it would have to be a big upgrade over what they have now and i don't necessarily see that out there yeah you know i i don't see them going after marcelo zuna i just see them at this point probably more likely to ride it out and they've already invested so much on the pitching side they've added shaw on the position player side they would have liked to add a center fielder i mean I heard from people in the organization as recently as a couple months ago who thought that they were going to add someone and that Hernandez would not be the guy opening day. But yeah. I don't get the sense that there's momentum building for something on the center field front in the short term. I, I don't know, but like the 2021 center fielder, I don't think is here. Yeah. 
right now, you know? And I like 2020 might just be another year where you're kind of figuring it out, right? Like it's, you got a little bit of uh, Teoscar and you got a little bit of Grichuk and like maybe you sprinkle in a little Davis that maybe a little Alford, like you just kind of, maybe a little Fisher, right? Like, and you just kind of give different guys a bit of rope with it and and just kind of mix and match there. But I don't think that like the guy who's going to hold down that job when this team hopes to be good again uh, is currently in the organization. I mean, not at this rate. They're hoping for breakouts, right? And they need some breakouts on the pitching side too. They need, you know, they'd love a breakout from Travis Shaw. They they kind of need someone from that group of, you know, 300 OBP, decent slug outfielders to emerge as a guy that they can really rely on. Maybe in the same way that, you know, Guriel has emerged in the last couple of years. It's a lot to ask for. There's no guarantee it'll happen, but they need that. They need some breakouts on the pitching side too, because, you know, even though the rotation now looks pretty solid, I think that that depth group that now projects to start at AAA, they're going to have their chances and they're go- going to have chances to impact this this major league team. But, you know, Anthony Kay, of course, being in that group too. But it would be really helpful for this team if they could have one or two of those guys step up in a big way. That's the biggest thing that could happen for them this season, I think. And it's what they did not get at all last season when they were just open doors in the rotation and just like, please come take this job. Like, please come pitch in our rotation every five days. And Sean Reed Foley couldn't do it. And TJ Zoic and Anthony Kay and all right, Jacob Wagus back. Like guys had their opportunities for a guy to take a step and be like, no, I'm not just like a fringy kind of major league guy. Like I am a like Tanner Roark level, which is like totally average pitches innings, like 420 ERA. Like I am that guy. That's the level that they need one of those guys to get to so they can start building around him. And they just didn't get that breakout last year for it to happen this year from like, it could be a John Harris. It could be a Jen C Diaz, like whoever, like for somebody to show up and take one of those opportunities and run with it. I mean, that's one of the biggest swing factors I think for this organization going forward. And it's a reason why I think that the Roark deal might be unique to this off season. When we look ahead, at least if the blue Jays plan goes right, they're not going to have to dip into free agency to get the mid to back end starter. They would ideally, in their plan, want to develop those guys. And then in a couple of years, it's you know Woods Richardson or it's Alec Manoa. And those guys certainly have more upside uh, to be top of the rotation type arms potentially. But I think this Blue Jays plan would be develop these guys internally and then you don't have to go and supplement with the two times 24. I think Roark's going to follow, uh, I'm going out on a limb here, but he's going to follow the same kind of progression that like Marco Estrada and Jay Happ did when they arrived Jay Happ the second time when Marco Estrada and Jay Happ came around to this organization fans did not like those moves when Adam Lind was traded for Marco Estrada fans hated it right when Jay Happ was signed for three years 36 people were like what like what are they doing and then they both became beloved and everyone realized oh this guy's actually really good (laughs) I think that Roark is going to follow that that narrative a little bit because uh, I understand like it's underwhelming on paper and I understand it's not the sexiest profile. It's an absolutely necessary one for a winning team is to have an innings eater is to have a guy who's going to take it every five days and give you MLB average innings and actually above average over the last like several years cumulatively this past year he was just average, but like over the last few years, he has actually been an above average MLB pitcher in terms of ERA like that doesn't grow on trees. Um, that isn't something that is easily developed as we have seen. Like there, that is a real like commodity to have. And that is a real help to your team. 
Absolutely. And especially after last year, I mean, you look at the group of Clayton Richard, Clay Buckles, Edwin Jackson, Ryan Fearbent. They started 28 of the Blue Jays games last year. Care to venture a guess to what the ERA for that uh, group was in the 28 starts? 650. Try 748. <laughs> <laughs> so 36 homers allowed in 138 innings. I mean, just awful, right? Yeah. Really, really awful. And so that's going to be replaced not necessarily by Ryu because he might make 10 starts next year. We don't know. Mm-hmm. But it will be replaced by Roark maybe or you have a Waggis Pack or an Anthony Kay. You're just not going to that waiver wire to fill your rotation. Since 2016, Tanner Roark has thrown the 11th most innings in baseball, been worth 10 war over that time, has a 399 ERA over that span, over a ton of innings, which is well above the MLB average of 4.28. I get it. It's not like super high upside. He's not going to win a Cy Young. He's not going to be an all-star, but I think he's going to be really dependable, and I think fans are really going to come around on him in a way that they did similarly. Shun Yamaguchi, another addition who we'll see what he could be, kind of a swingman type. Looks like he's got some versatility, could start, could relieve, has closed. Uh, you know, it, it's that's going to be much more of a let's see what we've got for the Blue Jays uh, because there are obviously like a lot of factors that go into making the transition from NPB to MLB. When you look at the group um, as a whole in the Blue Jays rotation, how good do you think they are? Because I mean, last year we saw the Toronto rotation combined for a 5-2-5 ERA. I mean, that was yeah. one of the worst in baseball. We saw you guys, I mean, everyone who was around this team last year was just constantly bemoaning the state of the rotation. I mean, there were, it was the opener and a guy. It was, we don't have anybody else. You know, it was, <laughs> yeah. they were constantly just making things up on the fly. Yeah. And it led to a 5-2-5 ERA. So when you look ahead, how much, I mean, it will be better. How much better will it be? It's undoubtedly better. Uh, it's not good enough, no. right? Like, I don't want to sit here and make, you know, people no. think like, oh, yeah, this, yeah, maybe things could go right this year. Like, I'm still like, best case scenario, I think Blue Jays are 500 this year. In order to contend in the American League East, like, you need multiple Ryus. Yeah. You know, it can't just be Ryu and like this, you know, and then Anderson, Roark, like, you, you're fine. Like, you'll do okay, but you're not going to be elite. You're not going to excel. Like you need high impact guys. So I think they've taken a step towards that. Yeah. And I think Nate Pearson, when he shows up, if he's as exceptional as a lot of people expect him to be, and I expect him to be, he could slot in as another one of those really high upside guys at the front of a rotation. But I still think they'll need one more beyond that. And I still think they'll need to find their like Garrett Cole trade or, you know, like their Justin Verlander trade, right? Like their their Chris Sale deal, right? Like the deal where they bring in a really high upside young-ish pitcher with you know like a few years of contractual control and you're giving up prospects that you like to get them right like you're giving up guys who might go on to have good MLB careers to get them but he is impacting your rotation in a big way now you can get that guy through trade through free agency like you're kind of living with well let's see what Trevor Bauer can do for us right or you could go and spend to get Garrett Cole, the Blue Jays would have had to go to, like, God knows what. <laughs> when you look at what he signed for, yeah, right? 400 million, who knows what the price would have been. <laughs> but as soon as, like, a Garrett Cole has the Yankees and Dodgers in on him, yeah. like, it's the Blue Jays just, it's going to be very hard for them to compete with that. So they're going to need to find that trade. So, yep. like, it's a long-winded way of saying, like, yeah, I think, think they're better, but I don't think that they're good enough. You think they're major league average? Ooh. 
Uh, maybe a little, little below. Yeah, I, w- I would below. agree. I think they're a little worse than major league average, yeah. which is a huge improvement compared to last year. <laughs> yeah. You know, so we're on the one hand we're saying it's much improved. On the other yeah. hand, it's still not objectively good. It's more, it's closer to average than good. This is not the Cleveland rotation. This is not the Tampa rotation where you have Morton and Glasnow and Snell, or the Yankees Severino and Cole and Paxton. I mean, those are rotations on a different level altogether. Yeah. And so it's a combination of savvy ads, like we've seen this offseason, finding that like big ticket guy through trade, or like if you, I don't know, I just, like I just said, I don't think it's going to happen in free agency. It's a combination of those things. And then this development system that you've poured a lot of time and a lot of resources, a lot of energy into over the last couple of years, starting to produce some guys, you know, like starting to get some more like Kevin Biggio success stories yeah. where it's like, hey, he went from org guy to like above average hitter, good defender at second base, everyday major leaguer, you know, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. success stories, right? Where it's like he went from, oh, what's this guy going to be to like, wow, like we've got a left fielder who is like flirting with a 900 OPS. Having more of that coming up from within is going to be, if it happens, such a help to yep. this franchise. And we we saw a bit of it on the position player side last season. Didn't see enough of it on the pitcher side. This year, if you get a Nate Pearson to the big leagues and he's really good, that'll be a big help. If a Jordan Groshans shows up, like this year might be too early, but like I think he's probably the guy who displaces Vlad at, at third base Could if be. he shows up yep. and he's really good. If Santiago Espinal even just like showed up this year, played like five different positions and was like an above average hitter, that would be so much better than running out the Richard Urania's and Bravik Valera's of this world. Yeah, absolutely. And for every guy like that that you do develop, it means that next offseason when James Paxton is a free agent and you're talking to Scott Boris again, then you're less desperate. You know, not to say that the Jays were necessarily desperate this offseason, but the more options you have internally, the more patience you can have with each free agent that comes available what happens with ken giles that's like a big question that i have right now because the blue jays were motivated to trade him that last year's deadline had a deal fall through right at the end uh came into this offseason and like before the ryu deal i was kind of like yeah ken giles probably going to get traded now i don't know does it move the goalposts on that a little bit or do the blue jays still just need to extract value from a guy who has it uh before he leaves you know, some people view this differently, and Josh Donaldson's probably the most prominent example where this has been a decision point for the for the Blue Jays. But when a player is a year away from free agency, I don't think there's urgency. Like, I don't think it's necessarily bad to, quote-unquote, get nothing back for a guy if he leaves. Because you're not getting nothing. You're getting his production, and you're getting a draft pick. So if he leaves, you make him, or if he reaches free agency, make him the qualifying offer, which he might accept, or he might take the, you know, kind of Will Smith deal, Um is Smith signed with the Braves for 39 over three? And that's probably a fair market price for Giles if he does reach free agency. And, you know, at that point, the Blue Jays would get a draft pick. So I don't think you need to rush into something right now. But with that being said, if they're ever going to talk extension, this is the time to do it. Worst case scenario is that the Blue Jays get Ken Giles in 2021 for $18 million. Yeah. Right? That is the worst case scenario yep. in all of this. Like best case is like you fought, you do like a Chapman deal or something, right? And you get like two really good prospects yep. in exchange for him. And then in the middle ground is kind of like, yeah, you, you get his production through 2020 and then you give him a qualifying offer at the end of the year and he doesn't take it. And I would think next winter players will probably be more likely to decline their qualifying offers just based on the 
activity we saw yep. this winter. Yeah, I would agree. It will obviously depend on the season that he has and what the market's looking like and what teams would be you know looking for his services. But I think that based on the spending that we saw this offseason, if I'm a player, I'm probably taking my chances next offseason. So, yeah, then you end up with a draft pick for him. So I think, yeah, he, he starts like opening day. Ken Giles is the Blue Jays closer. Yes. If they are way out of it in yeah in July, then he definitely gets traded. What will be interesting is if they're like 500 in July. Yeah. That's where it'll be a really interesting discussion because it's like, you know, they're like, what then it'll come down to, as Ross Atkins would say, what the opportunities yeah. are <laughs> yeah. and what the alternatives are and yeah. what's out there. But it would have to be tempting at that point if there was a tangible return of players that the Blue Jays like that maybe are undervalued in other organizations. Like if there was like a Simeon Woods Richardson type out there, like, it would have to be very tempting for the Blue Jays to make that deal. Yeah, I think if they're 52 and 50 and they get the Marcus Stroman return for Giles, you do it, mm-hmm. in my opinion. But, I mean, we'll see where it leads. I think I think if they're 500, they listen with no obligation to go one way or the other. Certainly, you know, it, it would require, you know, a little finessing from a messaging standpoint, both within the clubhouse and publicly, if you're at or around 500 and you're trading your closer. But at the same time, you probably have to be above 500 if you want to have a real shot at making the playoffs. So I think you'd, you'd owe it to yourself to listen. <laughs> In this division, like you <laughs> yeah. need to be like flirting with winning 100 games. Legitimately. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, you to, have to be really, really good. You have to be so good. And the Red Sox and Yankees and Rays, I mean, even the Red Sox, people are overlooking them, but they're not a bad team. They're still a good baseball team with a lot of offensive potential. Yeah, like there's, it's not the AL Central where you can be like, oh, we're like projected for, you know, 87, 88 wins. Maybe we get some good luck and we'll, uh, you know, take this division or something. Like there are giants among you in this division. You have to be that much better. Like you have to be like when you are going for it and when you are like trying to win, you got to be projecting for high 90s wins. And the Jays are nowhere close to there. I think they have downside to be low 70s in the win total. I think they have upside to be in the, you know, mid to upper 80s in the win total. I think they're probably a 500 team on paper right now. But the addition of Ryu changes a lot of things. When you just look at how this team feels, and you know, there's no, it's, it's kind of unscientific, but when you look at this roster now, when you think about this Toronto Blue Jays team, adding Ryu is a big difference. It's like, it, it is a good step. And I think that it has answered a lot of the questions, and a lot of criticisms about this front office, but they will still be evaluated based on what happens next. You know, as like, they should be, yeah. as, right? Because uh, there's more money to spend, yep. and there's more pieces that they need, and there are like more difficult decisions coming up where like you might have to like you talk about the risk and you talk about like not wanting to you know have something blow up in your face. You might have to trade a prospect who you think is going to be really good in order to get somebody who's going to help you win today. And not to end on a really negative note here, but I, you know, you you talk about good things happening, and maybe a Groshans will break out, or maybe a rotation, you know, someone will someone will break out in that rotation. Well, bad things are going to happen too, you know, (laughs) and maybe it's somebody's going to get hurt, man. Someone get hurt, gets hurt every year. Bobichet, like ACL tear or whatever. Right? Yeah. Let's let's hope not. He's he's a lot of fun to watch, but there will be an injury or someone will just disappoint, and you know, they won't live up to their potential. So you have to account for both sides of it. Oh yeah, absolutely. The other side of like a, a projection and getting lucky is yeah. like getting unlucky, right? <laughs> and that can be just even just in one run games, right? Like right. that can even just be you know like just kind of fluke stuff, right? Where oh yeah, we've just you know the ballparks played a lot smaller this year or something like that. Like that type of stuff can impact you negatively as well. Yeah. So you're you're thinking like 82 wins this year? 80, 81, 82. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're better. The offensive core is going to be better. They have a good young offensive core. 
they were rookies last year. They'll be better. I'm confident in saying they'll be better in 2020. Experience. They'll be on the field more. Those guys spent half the year in the minors last year. That's going to make a difference. Pearson will be up at some point. You have Ryu, who, again, the NL Cy Young runner-up last year. That's a good player on this team. Roark, Anderson, it's a better team. I, you know, They lost 95 games, so projecting them to, to win 81, that's still a 14-game improvement. That's a lot. But I think it's possible with a young team and a better pitching staff. I'm probably a bit, I'm, I'm below you. I'm probably 78 to 80 right now. But yeah, that, that could turn based on, you know, what we see in spring, like who's, you know, who shows up, like, like I said, like if they get like a Santiago Espinal who shows up and is really good, like if a Anthony K, like, you know, all of a sudden like has strings together 10 really good starts out of the gate, you know, even though he might not even be in the rotation on, on opening day, right. you know, if Chase Anderson shows up and hitters aren't familiar with him, haven't seen him and, and starts having some immediate success if Matt Shoemaker like comes right. back. Yeah. Travis Shaw is like 2017 Travis Shaw again. Uh, their lineup could be really good <laughs> their pitching staff probably the upside is more mediocre but the lineup right. actually could be good yes you just need Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to play to his potential Bo Bichette to keep doing what he's been doing Kevin Biggio to keep doing what he's been doing Goriel to keep doing what he's been doing right like this is, there's a lot of ifs there yeah. there's not a lot of certainty no there is not no there is never any any certainty uh, that's Ben Nicholson Smith I'm Arden Zwelling I want to thank uh, Will Carson and Amal Delich for helping us out today and to all of you for listening see you next time on At The Letters <laughs>